This is chapter 96 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Just in time for President's Week, we feature a book about George Washington's first love and the forces that kept the couple apart. Then we get a lesson in digital detoxing from Georgetown computer science professor Cal Newport. Chances are when you think of George Washington, you think of the founding father whose image graces the dollar bill and not a young eligible bachelor who fell hard and fast for Mary Phillips, one of the richest women in the colonies. But that's the version of our first president who exists in the pages of Dear George, Dear Mary, the debut novel from New York City TV anchor and first lady of Yonkers, Mary Calvey. She shares how she first stumbled upon their love story. I was truly stunned at finding the information, and I found it very unexpectedly. I started researching Mary Phillips when my husband was inaugurated as mayor and was having his ceremony at a place called Phillips Manor. And for years, there was this urban legend, local lore, that George Washington once courted the heiress who lived there. And since my husband was the mayor, I thought, we probably should know the history. So we tried to substantiate that claim. And when I couldn't find it from the folks that we were asking, I decided to start doing the research myself. And it just went on and on. I became completely immersed in it and very passionate about the project. And I just looked everywhere I had to in order to find the full story of George and Mary. I can't even imagine the amount of research and the number of hours of research that went into it. Where where did you even start? So I believe one of my first places was online, digital archives. That's where I started looking. And the first location I went to visit was Library of Congress, but I also went to Harvard University's Houghton Library, which has a, a very extensive manuscript uh, collection. New York Historical Society is an amazing place as well. Uh, New York Public Library and the Huntington Library out in San Marino, California had a document that's been in archives possibly forever. I'm not sure if it's ever seen the light of day. And it's a document that's actually the end papers in the book. And it was very instrumental in having me be able to piece together a story of love, but also of deception. Because what I found was, while George Washington was courting this New York heiress, Mary Phillips, who was, I believe, the richest single woman in colonial America at the time, Other men were trying to court her as well. And I was able to find that list of suitors and the names of those suitors from the archives of a library in California. And so when I actually got that document, it was really eye-opening because the names on that list seemed very familiar to me. They seemed like the men who were wronging George Washington at that same time as George was trying to court this heiress. So did you connect those dots yourselves and that's sort of the fictional part of your book or did you find evidence in history to support what you thought was going on? So I believe, yes, there is evidence in history because the historical documents, when you look at them as a whole, they certainly show a picture. It it was just like document after get document pieced together like a puzzle. And it was very clear to me what I was seeing. It's never been talked about in history, and that surprised me. In fact, I stopped doing the research for a couple of months just to go back to see if anybody else had said this and if anybody else had made these connections. And 
I was surprised that no one did. In fact, there was one document that was really curious to me. It was a scathing article written about George Washington in 1756. And this article was fascinating because it claimed debauchery and gambling and womanizing against George Washington. And it was written anonymously. And that really triggered something in me to determine, well, who wrote the article? And could it have been the same group of men who I believe was wronging George Washington because that's what I was seeing? And I believe that was the case. I believe not only did they write this scathing article against George Washington, put an anonymous name at the bottom of it and printed it in the colonial newspapers, but they also prevented him from getting the promotions he rightfully deserved and also prevented him from seeing the woman that he had fallen in love with. Now, one of the first questions I had was, was there a courtship? Did George Washington court Mary Phillips? And I needed to answer that question first. So I went back to biographies in the 1800s to determine whether she had been mentioned back then. And I found a fabulous article written in 1896 by Woodrow Wilson. And an image was created at that time. Howard Pyle is the artist. He was commissioned for this. And he put together, a, he, he produced a beautiful uh, painting of George Washington and Mary Phillips sitting across from each other on what was called an interview back then, but now we would call it a date. And that image is in storage right now at Boston Public Library, but it was produced for this article. And the article was very clear in stating that uh, that George Washington was very interested in Mary Phillips. Then I went to look at a couple of other biographies, and there was one written by uh, Henry Cavett Lodge, who was a prominent historian at the time. And in his book, he's very clear in stating that, yes, he fell in love in apparently short notice with heiress Mary Phillips. So Washington's interest and admiration for Mary Phillips as Washington Irving even states was historical fact at that time. There are also documents from George Washington's historic financial ledgers that describe dates uh, with a woman and historians have long believed those dates were with Mary Phillips. And also through the book with the the resources that you used, you also rely a lot on words that George Washington himself spoke and wrote. How did you decide what to use and where to use it in what context to use it in? Well, you know, it's funny that you ask that question because I was really stuck. I'm here, here I am finding information about George Washington. I mean, it's so significant. And I'm thinking, I can't put words in George Washington's mouth. I mean, what am I going to have him say? It wouldn't be right of me to produce that. And so I went back to look at his letters and his journal entries and his speeches. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be better if I were to use his own words? So what I started to do was look at what he wrote about in that same year that he met Mary Phillips. And I started with those letters and those journal entries. But then I found other interesting elements that I thought would be really nice to know more about George Washington, especially in his younger years. You know, we hear about George Washington as a general and a president, but what about him as, as in his 20s, you know? Um, and I found some love poems that he had written down in his journals. I thought, well, that would be amazing to be able to include that in some way in the story. And there were a number of uh, 
pieces of information that I, I had where George Washington wrote the word love for whatever reason. And I thought, let me just go and dig a little deeper as to what those meant and, and uh, why would he write those. So I really tried to stick with information about George Washington from that time when he was in his late teens and his early 20s. A few elements I took from later in life, but I, I really tried to focus on that time in his world. I think it's really interesting. You kind of hit on it a little bit, is that when we think of George Washington, we think of the guy on the dollar bill, and we don't think of him as a young man who apparently was a real catch and the ladies were swooning all over, or at least in your book he is. Well, actually, back then, women wanted a touch of him. I mean, that's what they were quoted as saying. They wanted a touch of him. And in fact, he would dance the night away so that he made sure he danced with every bell at the assembly ball. And I thought that was pretty fascinating, um, you know, because I started thinking the same way you did. You know Washington on the dollar bill, and you know Washington as the president. And, and actually, my knowledge of Washington in his younger years was very limited. So I had to do so much research because I didn't really know who he was. I mean, I really wanted to know about how he grew up and what inspired him, what motivated, what drove him to do the things that he did. So I went back, way back, as far as I could in George Washington's life and tried to really get a full understanding of, of who it is that I was writing about. And he's also somewhat vulnerable as someone who's trying to get into this upper class circle of society and not having it, and he's always doubting himself and whether he'll fit in, isn't he? That's what I found in his letters very often is, um, especially in his younger years, you know, questioning and, and doubting in a way. He didn't have the formal education that others had at the time. He didn't have the wealth that other people had. He had lost his father at a young age. And so he really had to rely on books for his education. And I think that he was always looking to move up, you know, to do better. And he had certainly the resolve to do that. But at the time when he was in his early 20s, he didn't have everything else that was needed to get there. And so he strove to incorporate all of that into his life and to elevate himself. He really worked very hard at that. So your story is about George, but more so it's about Mary, I think, or Polly as her family called her. And she's really kind of a, a tragic character in history. She's one of, I think, three women who was charged with treason after the Revolutionary War. What about her stuck with you as you were writing this book? You know, it's such a good question. And truthfully, that was what really motivated me to research the story. Because here was a woman who was named an enemy of the state during the American Revolution. And I thought, well, why? You know, what did she do? And then I realized that two other women were named traitors during the American Revolution. That would have been her sister, Susanna, as well as a minister's wife. So you had three women named traitors in the American Revolution. And so I spent the time, as I was researching the relationship with George Washington and Mary Phillips, trying to understand what it was that she did that was treasonous. And what I found was nothing. What I found was that these three women were the only three women who owned significant property in the colony of New York at the time. Unless someone could tell me differently, that's what it shows. That's what the research shows, which is so curious, isn't it? Three women, they were the only three women who owned significant property, the only three women named traitors in, 
all of colonial America during the American Revolution. And what happened to them? Well, they, it was devastating. And so that is what pushed me forward, to be able to tell her story, to tell her sister's story, and to be able to really get a full understanding as to exactly what happened here. There was vengeance that was involved here. And I thought, I really need to find the details of it. And truthfully, I think many of the details are yet to be found. And when you're talking about property, we're not talking about a house. We're, we're talking about swaths of land that covered some parts of Manhattan up on to Yonkers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in total, the Phillips family owned a quarter million acres of property all along the Hudson River. I mean, that is massive. Mary herself owned 51,000 acres of property, and that is a huge amount of property. It was very rare at the time for um, a woman to own her own property. She actually had a prenuptial agreement before she even married. It was called an anti-nuptial, and uh, fascinating to read that, but she kept her property even after she was married. So you are absolutely right. All of their property started in Harlem and went north all along the Hudson River. And I mean, you can just keep on going up north, 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 and that belonged to the Phillipses. And you can imagine what that could would have been worth today. And at the time, it was worth quite a bit of money, too. So, yes, it was... Um, her estate was taken from her. All of her possessions were taken from her, too. So, and it goes on and on. I mean, she was really wronged under a law that was only passed in New York, and it would never happen to a woman before her or a woman after her. Some things never change. Yeah, I, it's just, it is really remarkable. I, I was really surprised um, as I was doing the research that, yes, we're, centuries have passed, but so much remains the same. I mean, it's clear that you've done a lot of research in terms of George Washington's life, Mary's life, the relationship they have together. But it also really comes through in the book is the attention to detail that you paid to the clothing, to the food, the way they they threw balls. Was there anything that you came across that you just thought was really fun and, oh, oh my God, I have to include it in the book? Absolutely. Cuisine. I (laughs) loved the food. And so when I started doing the research, honestly, I thought, well, what... You know, here I am talking about George meeting Mary at um, at a banquet, and well, what did they eat? I mean, I honestly, I was dumbfounded. I had no idea what they were eating in the 1700s. So I had to do research on that aspect of it, and I was really fascinated. I, I actually used a cookbook from the 1700s that I obtained, and I all of the meals are pretty much from there. All of the foods are from there, but one of them that I really loved was pretty almond pudding, and I thought, oh, that would be lovely. I have to add pretty almond pudding in there because not only would um, it taste wonderful, but it probably would smell beautifully, too, throughout the house. So I I was able to incorporate smells from the cuisine, and it made me hungry. And I tried to make some of the recipes. Some of them came out better than others, and I'm still working on that because you really have to translate it to this time. Uh, But um, it's been a lot of fun, you know. And and so, yeah, cuisine is in there. Fashion is in there. All of the fashions, almost every single uh, article of clothing is from the Met Museum's Costume Institute's digital archives. So I went to look at their archives to determine what did they wear. You know, it was the same as what did they eat, but what did they wear? So uh, so I went back there. So many of the uh, costumes that you read about are actually taken and inspired by the archives at Met Museum's Costume Institute. In addition, I wanted to add the music that they were listening to. There was a lot of music being played back then. And um, 
it was so beautiful, and I thought, well, I really want to be able to have the reader understand what people were hearing at the time. And I included an, a number of dances. There were very specific dances that people danced in the 1700s, um, just like, you know, maybe we did the Macarena in the 80s. <laughs> they did uh, other dances like that as well, country dances in the 1700s. So people will really get a full understanding of what was happening in the 1700s, I hope, you know, a full portrait of what life might have been like and I actually have a note for myself here uh, that I have to ask you what was the deal with ketchup can you believe it <laughs> ketchup yes so uh, again uh, ketchup came from that 1700s cookbook that what that was one of the first recipes that stood out in my mind you know it's funny that you were asking me like what stood out in your mind and it was ketchup <laughs> not only was it ketchup but it was 20 year ketchup so it was like a ketchup that you could take with with you you know on a ship if you had to and it would always last and um, uh, that's such an interesting one I'll have to provide you the recipe so you could take I a look at it. yeah 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 so I know, um, I haven't touched on this at all, but you're a familiar face to anybody who watches CBS News here in New York in the morning. You're the first lady of Yonkers. You have three kids. Where did you find time to do all this research and write this book? Honestly, this is what happened. I just embraced it. I really, I, I'm not even under, under, I, understanding myself, like, how it was that I did it. But truthfully, you know, I would get up at the crack of dawn on the weekends and worked as, work as much as I could. I mean, I literally, I was putting dinner in the oven and going back to my old books. I mean, it was just like that. It was like every second that I had available to me when I was home, um, I was researching and, and reading and writing and uh, traveling whenever I had to and making the time. It was really... Uh, a real labor of love and in fact you know you mentioned my kids and my husband I mean they helped me I mean they really did they helped me do the research they helped me do the writing um, they uh, traveled with me whenever we needed to go into different places my daughter was with me in a, a basement of a church uh, looking through documents you know so I just included all of them and 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 I I think we had a lot of fun with it do you plan to keep on writing so I am um, I, it, it was I, you know, I want to say absolutely, yes, I would love to say that. But I think that I just need a moment to just um, finish researching this story to make sure that I have everything that I need to um, say, said. I, I feel like there are more documents that need to be discovered. So I think just for the research sake, I think I need to just focus on that for a moment. But boy, yes, I mean, if I had an opportunity to do it again, I would 100% do it. It might take a little bit of time, though. It feels that what you're saying is you're going to follow your journalist's nose, and there might be like a uh, nonfiction companion piece oh, to come wow. along. Well, that would be, oh, that would be spectacular. Oh, I would love to do that. 100% I would love to do that. So maybe, maybe, maybe you'll see, maybe we'll talk again about this. I hope so. I hope so, too. The book is Dear George, Dear Mary. Mary Calvi, thank you so much. It was so lovely to have you here. Thank you. And I'm going to hold you to giving me that ketchup recipe. <laughs> done. It's done. Yes. You might be familiar with the phrase FOMO, fear of missing out. Social media is a big driver of that feeling, or depending on how you look at it, anxiety. And even though a lot of people say they want to quit, most don't know how or are worried about missing out. It's a vicious cycle. Enter Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World, the new book from Georgetown professor Cal Newport. 
I recently spoke with the so-called Marie Kondo of technology about the joy that comes from wiping the digital slate clean and rebuilding from scratch. So digital minimalists are people who are very intentional about the way they use technology, especially in their personal life, where they work backwards from what they really value and then instrumentally say, what's the best way to use technology to help these values and then ignore everything else. And so they have this very selective toolbox of digital tools that gives them a lot of value and they ignore the rest of the noise pulling out their attention. And there's this idea that... uh a lot of us are incapable of resisting the lure of technology. And you make the argument in the book that this is totally intentional on the parts of these developers. This was a shift that occurred. Uh, It was driven by the large social media platforms with Facebook taking the lead, which is when they needed to get their revenue numbers up for their pending IPO, they shifted the experience to mobile. And then they re-engineered the experience around from something that was more static, I post, you post, we look at each other's post, into this more compulsive constant stream of likes and mentions and ats and hearts they're constantly coming at you in the app like uh, rewards on a slot machine and so they really created this model of the phone as a constant companion something that you're looking at all the time and the forces behind this are very powerful because they spent a lot of money at it and they're very good at what they do I think there are a lot of people listening to us who probably fall into that group or or find themselves on the phone more than they want to or checking in more often than they want to. You suggest that people embark on a 30-day digital declutter. Tell us what that's all about. Well, a good analogy is like what Mary Kondo talks about with your closet, which is you don't just go through and occasionally take some things out that you don't need anymore. If you really want to spark change, you take everything out. You empty it. And then you only bring back in what's important. Well, that's what I suggest for people's digital lives. Instead of trying to tweak your notifications or go app by app and say, do I really need this? Get rid of everything for 30 days. Clear out the proverbial closet. Everything you can step away from without causing major issue or harm, do so. And then after those 30 days are over, only add back in things for which you can make a very strong argument that this is significantly helping something I really care about and be comfortable about missing out on everything that doesn't pass that muster. I find it fascinating that when you were looking for volunteers to to first try this decluttering, that the response was overwhelming. That's how I knew that there was an issue going on in our culture right now, because I thought I was going to get a couple dozen volunteers. I mean, I was asking people to step away from tech for 30 days for no other reason than to just maybe send me some notes or let me know how it goes. And 1,600 people signed up to do it. And so this is when I knew, okay, we are uneasy. This is not just me. I think as a culture, we realize the pendulum has shifted too far in the direction of exuberant embrace of all things new, and people are hungry to take back control over what role do these tools actually play in my life. This really falls into all about you using technology the way you should be using it and not letting it use you, right? Yeah, go back to the the tool mindset. You have things that are very important to you. Figure out what those are. Tech can probably help some of those, just like an artist has a particular chisel or brush that they really like because it helps them get an effect they need. These tech tools should be used the same way. If there's something you really care about, and there's a piece of tech that can really help you with that, great. Deploy it like a tool, like an artist with their chisel and brush. Don't fall into the situation where you just download or sign up for anything that seems interesting and then let these giant attention economy conglomerates just uh, grab onto your attention and alchemize it into stock value, And where you, on the other hand, are looking up and where did my last three hours go. 
Take back control. These are tools for you to do things that really matter to you. You don't have to be a gadget in the business model of these other companies. And we're not talking about, you know, deleting your work email from your phone because that's something that you do have to keep on top of and is something that, you know, you don't want to lose your job over. And it's more the stuff that maybe you mindlessly scroll through Pinterest while you're watching TV. Yeah, that's exactly right. So what's happening in work there is issues what's going on in the professional world. Uh, you know, my last book, Deep Work, got into this quite a bit about we spend too much time communicating about work instead of working. Those are real issues, but they're very separate issues than what's going on in people's personal life. So what you're doing in your personal digital life, this is a separate type of problem than what's happening in, say, the standard knowledge work workplace. And so when I'm talking about decluttering and taking back control of the tools in your life, uh, I'm really focusing on outside of work, what you do in your time outside of work and how you interact with your screens. And you've really got seen or have gotten a positive response to people who followed through and stuck to those 30 days uh, in terms of decluttering, right? Yeah, it really has been life-changing for a lot of people and also eye-opening. I mean, a lot of people who went into it, for example, reported that they hadn't realized the degree to which this digital stream had subtly pushed out of their life all of these things that they used to find really valuable, high-quality analog activities, real-world conversations with people they cared about. So being able to get back to that, to reconnect to those type of things is, has been a, sort of a joyous transformation for a lot of people. And so I've, I've become a big, big fan of this. The small stuff's not going to work. If you want to change, do the big thing. 30 days, wipe the slate clean, rebuild from scratch. It really does work. How do you answer critics who say you can't possibly know what you're talking about because you yourself aren't on social media? You know, I get this a lot as if social media is like quantum physics. <laughs> unless, you're, <laughs> unless you're really closely involved in it, you, could, you couldn't possibly understand what happens. Um, you know, I've been researching and writing about social media for six or seven years at this point. Um, I, I think I have a pretty good idea of what people do uh, on these platforms. And more importantly, that critique captures in it the sort of maximalist attitude that I'm pushing back on, this attitude that the most important thing in life is not missing out on any value. That if anything could possibly bring you value, you should embrace it, you should do it. Uh, the biggest crime would be, hey, here's something you could have had, but you didn't. But we've known from the ancients through Thoreau and the modern thinkers that this maximalist mindset of trying to suck up every last scrap of potentially valuable things is always the road to ruin. The minimalists have it right. Don't worry about missing out on things you don't know about. Worry instead about not spending enough time on the things that you know for sure are really important to you. And I really take that as the biggest takeaway from your book. And I think it's a, a life lesson a lot of people can't afford not to learn. I, yeah, I completely agree. Uh, life is too fleeting and too important to haphazardly give away all of these moments to other companies who are trying to monetize it. Well, if people want to know more, the new book is Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World. Cal Newport, thank you for spending some time with us to talk about this. Thank you. I enjoyed it. That's this week's show. Next time around, we get a crash course in money and how not to do dumb things with it with the always engaging Jill Schlesinger. You're not going to want to miss it. As always, you can always find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books and feel free to reach out to us at books at entercom.com.